The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Grateful that you're here this morning, whether you're here with us in person or whether you're online joining us via live stream, we are grateful that you are with us today. We are in Ezra chapter 8. If you got a Bible or an app you want to turn there, that would be great. Um, I will remind you tonight at 6.30, we've got TBC together, super time of dessert and worship together. If you got a small group you want to bring to that, great time for you to gather as a small group here and we all join together. Well, last week, Pastor Tim kind of continued our journey that we're on as we talk about what it means to be the church rebuilding. And he, he mentioned, if you weren't here last week, you might miss this, that Ezra, kind of the first wave of people have come in with this guy named Zerubbabel, and now there's a second wave of people coming 80 years later, and this priest named Ezra is leading them. They're going a thousand miles over about three and a half months. Such a difficult journey. 5,000 people, old men, old women, young men, young women, children, animals, people getting sick along the way, probably people dying along the way. Hard, hard journey. And they're going through the desert about eight miles a day. Now, my, my family, I tried to think about what this would be like. My family maybe did an eight mile hike one day. But it wasn't in the desert. Uh, the ground was kind of flat. I mean, it was paved. We were in an outlet mall, right? But basically, we kind of got a day of this journey. You understand. I can't imagine what this would have been like 2,500 years ago. But they're part of this story of God's people. And Tim hit on it. The first several chapters are rebuild the temple and now we're in rebuild the people and then we'll go into Nehemiah rebuild the wall and then rebuild the people now we're going to read a little bit of chapter 8 but I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 then we're going to jump down to verse 15 because you don't want to hear anyone from Deweyville Texas pronounce Hebrew names for 13 verses <laughs> and then we're going to jump to verses 21 through 23 this fast because we'll talk about what it means to fast and then we'll read verse 31, so bear with me as we read this this morning. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush. In verse 15, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there was camp, we camped there three days, and I reviewed the people and the priests, and I found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, they needed some Levites, so he gathered some Levites, and in verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Verse 31, then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. 
And the hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And we came to Jerusalem, and we remained there for three days. Now, how in the world do we get to the gospel of Jesus from this story in Ezra? But that's exactly what we want to do. That's what we want to do every week. And the prayers we pray, and in the songs we sing, and in the scriptures we read was every story about the gospel, well, every story whispers his name. The whole Old Testament is pointing us to this Messiah who's going to come. So we're going to see Jesus in Ezra today. We're gonna to ask God to help us do that. God, would your hand of grace be on us for good as we seek you today? Lord, would you help us to lay aside things that would distract us from your will would your word instruct us and point us to Jesus and would we worship you with our lives as we journey together toward our home, the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, Ezra says the heads of the father's houses are with him. This is the genealogy of those who went with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. People talk about who was writing this book and maybe one person wrote one section, one person wrote another. Well, this section Ezra wrote because he says they were with me. Then he says the heads of the father's houses. Men were leading this, their wives along with them, maybe kids and grandkids along with them. One of the things that has marked TBC from the beginning is that TBC has been a place where we encourage men to follow Jesus and lead their families, but we also encourage women to follow Jesus and lead their families. You've got men and women leading families together. You've got some single moms leading families. You've got some single dads leading families, but we all are part of this grand journey and grand story that the people of God are on. It's a multi-generational story, just like the story of Ezra. There's a multi-generational story. And in verse two, he says, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ulthamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush. Now, why is this a big deal? I think for two reasons. One, Phinehas and Ulthamar, these are priests. And so the sons of priests are leading. And then David, he was the king. The sons of priests and kings, those who were called to mediate between the people and God and those who were called to lead the people of God, their children are now leading this journey again. And then here, here's this amazing thing. If you were to read Ezra 8, 2 through 14, what you would find is that all the people named except one are direct descendants. It's the same family names of the people who left 80 years before in Ezra chapter 2. It's the same families who are going generation after generation after generation. Now, the great majority of people who were in their father's houses who went in Ezra chapter 2, they're dead. It's 80 years later. But it's one people living one story on the same journey to establish the worship of God in all the earth. There's about 5,000 people that are going with Ezra, 1,200 men and their families. It's different stages, but they're one people and they reference the law. They don't reference the law of Daniel who was with them in Babylon. They don't reference the law of David. They reference the law of Moses. Generation after generation, Israel is called to be the people of God, establishing the worship of God in all the earth. Now, here's the thing. 
They know the story they are part of, and when they remember it, they do well, and when they don't, they don't. As I was telling early service, when they remember they are gods, they do well. Wait, did you say they're gods? When they remember they are gods, capital G-O-D apostrophe S, and they're living the story of his people, they do well, when they remember they belong to God. Sometimes they forget and they think they're gods, little g-o-d-s. They try to lead themselves and they fall short of who they were made to be. And there are lessons to learn from this story for us, I think. And first is this, we are part of the people of God. This story that started in Ezra didn't end with Israel because Jesus came in. And he said, you tear this temple down. It had been torn down once. It's rebuilt. You tear this temple down, and it would be in AD 70. And I'll raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body, and now we are the people of God. So it's good to remember the story we're part of. And we're part of this large story, but we're also part of a story in Central Texas called Temple Bible Church. This started as Temple Bible Chapel in 1971. We stand on the shoulders of some beautiful people, some of them who are still with us, some have gone on to be with the Lord, who they looked at Central Texas and they said, we want a place where God's people can learn the scripture. We want to be a people who care deeply about missions. We want to be a place where the gospel goes out. One of my favorite couples that that was early on with Temple Bible Church are Charlie and Vivian Stoner. They were launched out from TBC to Brazil. They spent 38 years in Brazil. This is after they had been there for about eight or nine years. I wanted to get a photo of when they first got there, but there were only paintings back then. There weren't photographs yet, right? (laughs) Since Charlie and Vivian served faithfully in Brazil doing theological education, music education, and children's ministry. Just amazing work, and they were there for 38 years, and about 11 years ago, I was missions pastor, I was sitting with them for lunch at Olive Garden, and we were eating soup and salad, and they said they were moving back to Temple to retire. And what retirement has looked like is they've just poured themselves out for the local church over and over and over again. If you don't know how to study the Bible and you wanna know how to study the Bible, Charlie's Examine Life class is going on right now. The man knows how and can teach people how to study the word almost like no one I've ever seen. He and Vivian just pour themselves out for the church. They continue to, they will until they go to be with Jesus. See, there's a ton of people like that. Some of them are still with us. Some have gone on, but we are part of a story. So there's a question to ask. Who is going to share the gospel, teach the word, love the people of Central Texas right now? Who's going to do that right now? And the answer is us. 50 years ago, there were people sharing the gospel in the neighborhoods of Temple, Texas. And today, the neighbors or neighborhoods of Temple, Texas need the gospel. Who's going to share the gospel? See, we are the people stepping into that story right now. Two lessons to learn. One is we would do well to remember the story we're a part of. But the other is that you got to decide what story you're going to be part of. You've got to decide. I have two sons that are studying Latin. They haven't yet realized that they know it. One of them knows it really well. One of them is just a year in, but he's learning it. They could say awful things about me and I would never know, right? 
But I was asking one of them, I was reading about this word decide. It comes from the Latin root kide or kise, and it means to cut off. See, when you decide to be part of one story, you're cutting off another story. You're saying, no, that's not the story I'm going to be part of. I'm going to be part of this one. What story are you going to be part of? Because in our wireless world today, most of us just kind of live in some sort of streaming Story, And if you don't pick the story, the story will pick you. What we consume, we will become. Do you want to live in a story that mimics Game of Thrones or Ted Lasso or TikTok? It doesn't matter if your story takes you to 2083 or 1883. Stories can be wonderful. They can inspire us. They can move us to great good or they can derail us. They can sideline us. They can hinder us from being the people God has called us to be. See, there, there's this one great and enduring story though, right? And it's this God who creates some things and he says they're good and he creates some more things and he says this is good and he creates more things over six days, this is good. And then he creates a man and a woman and he says this is very good. But you know, every good story has drama, And this one does. This man and a woman who were created very good didn't believe what God said. They were deceived and rebelled and fell and and we fell with them. In Adam, we all die because of sin. We are sinners and we sin and we're dead in our sins without Christ. It's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. I was texting a couple of friends about this bad habit that I have and one of them was suggesting ways to overcome the habit and finally he just said, could you just throw the bag of chips away? I said, man, it's not the chips, it's me. If the chips weren't there, granola bars would be, right? We sin because we're sinners, but there is a savior. Ezra's looking forward to this savior who's going to come, Bulls and goats, their blood ultimately could not take away sin, but the Savior, Jesus, who lived and died and rose from the dead, he did and he achieved victory over death and made a way for us to be with him, the king, forever. We don't just watch stories, we live in them. We live in them. I was visiting one of our guys, a guy named Brad, a a, a couple of weeks ago, and and he just shared about the story that he's living in. He, He coaches soccer, And his team wins lots of games, but he's not coaching soccer to win games. He's coaching soccer so that young men could come to know Jesus Christ and grow in Jesus Christ. And he and his wife are just working it out, what it looks like to be light in their community, to love their small group, to raise their kids, to know Jesus and follow Jesus. And I just, I thought, oh yeah, that's the sort of story I want to be living in. Nobody would hire me to coach soccer, right? But that's the sort of story I want to live in. What's the story that your life is telling? What's the story our lives are telling together? This genealogy tells a story, and it tells a story about this faithful priest, Ezra, who made this list of people. He was an expert in the law of Moses, and he leads the people back home to worship God. But as they're going... He says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava and we camped there three days and I reviewed the people and the priest and I found 
I found there none of the sons of Levi. The Levites were needed for proper worship to happen. So if you didn't know, El Nathan was a popular name in Israel. Verse 16, I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jerob, El Nathan, and Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Jeriah and El Nathan, who were men of insight. So he sends for these people, and he gathers them so that the people can worship. Levites are needed to accomplish the mission, and they're going to be called to teach the people as we get into Nehemiah. Well, why bring the Levites to make sure everything's working out right for the house of God? Because abandoning the house of God and the word of God is what got them into exile originally. We're going to look back about 200 years before 2 Chronicles 24, verses 17 through 19. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served the ashram and the idols. They began to worship these false gods. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring bring them back to the Lord, and these testified against them, but they would not pay attention. They abandoned the house of God, they abandoned the word of God, and they got sent into exile. Today, if you abandon the worship of God and the word of God, you will get sent into a wilderness of exile you might not be prepared to handle. It happens sometimes. And so we're the church in the West. When we look at it, we do it in a variety of ways where we cling with our allegiance to something other than the word of God and the worship of God, and it doesn't go well. You might be thinking, oh, right, I I know, I've seen that happen. There are these other people that do that a lot, right? But we've got to ask, are there ways that we abandon the worship in the word? And when we do, it doesn't go well, just like it didn't for Israel. But they're coming back out of exile. And we don't want to miss what the story is telling us as we look back at it through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus. A faithful priest leads a people to worship and to return to the word of God. So, Years later, Jesus, our faithful high priest, is not going to go into the temple and make sure all the gold and the silver is weighed out and make sure the bulls and lambs and turtle doves and pigeons and grain are just right. He's going to sacrifice himself so that we could have our sins forgiven, intimately know and worship God as Father and have his law not written on tablets or stones or scrolls, but on our hearts. He's the sort of God we want to seek. And so Ezra is going to call the people to seek God. Verse 21, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. Verse 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against those who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. This word seek in verse 21 and seek in verse 22 and implore in verse 23, they're all the same word as the Hebrew verb, bakash, and, and what it would tell us is that they are putting all of their eggs in one basket. They're trusting fully in God. 
Now, we got to be careful when we read this. Because Ezra says, I was doing this because I was ashamed to ask the king because I told him God would protect us. Now, we might read this. You might read this. Someone could read this and go, oh, see, you, you don't ask for help for anybody else if you're asking God for help. That's not the point of this, right? Nehemiah is going to ask the king for help and God is going to bless his asking just like he, best, he blesses Ezra's not asking. They seek God because God is with those who seek him. So they humble themselves to seek him because those who forsake him, his wrath will come on. So they implore God and he listens to their entreaty. Well, why did Ezra say no to the protection? I think there is a sort of comfort that comes from the protection of an earthly king. But there's also the sort of comfort that comes from the care and hope in the heavenly king when the stomach is empty, but the heart is full. So they humbly seek God through a fast. Now, fasting is difficult to consider because of schedule, we would say, and because of culture. But I think it's also, it's also hard to consider because we feast all the time, it would seem. It would seem that we do. I was reading a book this week, though, and it described what our feasting looks like. And it says that when the feast is to fill something empty inside us, we aren't actually feasting. We're using food as a coping mechanism. So fasting is a way to resist that. It's a way to resist the original sin of trying to eat our way to happiness. That fruit looks good and it's pleasing to the eyes. It'll make me like God. It's a way to resist that original sin of trying to eat our way to happiness and force ourselves to look to God for our fullness. The right sort of fasting would humble ourselves before God to seek God and in doing to move toward Christ, to turn away from food and turn toward the Father. We fast because we long for a feast. So four things about fasting just really quickly. Number one, when we fast, we remind ourselves that we need God to sustain us. As you fast, you will get hungry, right? And you remember, you can't go forever without food or you'll die. You need God to sustain you. He comes to us without any need and we come to him always in need. He comes to us fully in love. We come to him for help and with thanksgiving. When we fast, we remember we need God to sustain us. Number two, when we fast, we remember we were not put here to be consumed with our own desires. That's not the story we are living in. But rather, we were put here to love other people in the name of Jesus. When we fast, we remember food can't make us ultimately happy. Only the love of God can do that. And then when we seek God through fasting, we do it because we remember who he has been and what he has done. We express our longing for all these things still yet to be done. It's a cry for the king to come. For Ezra, that cry is the renewal of a confession that we need God and we long for him. It's not moralism, but it's humbling ourselves before God and seeking God. Oh my goodness, he fixing to tell us to fast? <laughs> I'm gonna tell you that you can, okay? 
So 10 days from now, something begins that Christians all over the world will start as a fast. It's called Lent. Now hear me, Lent has been done in some really awful and weird, non-God-glorifying ways over the years. And it's been done in some really beautiful and amazing ways over the years. It's a 40-day fast where Monday through Saturday you fast from something and then you partake of that on Sunday leading toward the Easter season. It starts March 2nd. Maybe you would take time this year to humble yourself and seek the Lord. Maybe it's a fast from food or a type of food. Maybe it's a fast from drink. Maybe it's a fast from sugar. Maybe it's a fast from social media. I've got a nephew, he's 11. He was 11. His mom was talking to him about Lent and she said, what do you think you'll fast from? And he goes, oh, I I think milkshakes. And uh, she said, well, how often do you, do you think you have a milkshake? And he said, mm, probably once every two months. <laughs> and she said, I think you might be missing the point, right? I'm going to fast from spinach right now. But is there something that really you would say to God, God, I long for you more than I long for this. God, I need you, this grumbling in my stomach, this desire to scroll, I need you more than I need that. They fasted and God heard their prayer. Verse 31, we departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. Now, we don't know if the enemy attacked them and ambushes came and God protected them that way or if God just kept enemies and ambushes away. But what we know is they humbled themselves to seek God and God heard their cry. He answered. And so they are set apart. And if you continue to read through the scripture on the fourth day when the house of God, the silver and gold, the vessels were weighed in the hands of Merimoth, the priest, son of Uriah, you start reading these names and the weights of all the gold and silver. And if you're not careful, you just start nodding. Well, what's going on here? That's happened to me twice through my Bible reading plan in the last week. Just a few days ago, I was reading in Exodus 28, and I'm reading about the priestly garments and all the things for the tabernacle, and you got to have 50 holes through the curtain, and there's the rods for the curtain, and then there's flowers on the uh, priest's shoulders, and there's this and this and this, and man, I'm about to go into a deep state of prayer, and then all of a sudden, I get to Exodus 28. Verse 40, in Exodus 28, 40, it says, For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and for beauty. Oh, there's something about glory and beauty. These are made so that people will be reminded how amazing God is. And then verse 41 says, You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, on his sons with him, and anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them. So I'm reading back in the Old Testament, similar passage here in Ezra, and I see these words anoint, ordain, and consecrate. And it kind of stirs me, oh, this is a set-apart people. And then if you read Exodus 29, the whole chapter is about these people being anointed, ordained, and consecrated, set apart for the worship of God. And then at the end of Exodus 29, atonement is made for them. Same thing happened this morning. I'm I'm in Leviticus about one through six this morning, and I have listened through 
all these details about sin offerings and guilt offerings, and it's about 5.15. And my coffee, I got about half the cup in me, but it hasn't really stirred me yet, right? And I'm reading about this and about this and about this, and I mean, I'm, I'm about to go and pray for an hour, right? <laughs> Silent prayer. And then I, then I saw Leviticus 6.13. And it says, never let the fire of the burnt altar or the burnt offering go out on the altar, but you keep it burning all the time. And I woke up. See, because worship is about all of life all the time, but also this altar for the burnt offerings, what is God saying to Israel? There's gonna be sacrifice made over and over and over. You're gonna need new mercies every day. You're gonna need to sacrifice every day because you, you're gonna blow it every day. But one day one is coming and he will sacrifice once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. See, we don't read Ezra and go, oh, we want to look back to Exodus and Leviticus. This is trying to help us understand what the tabernacle was about. No, we want to read Ezra and Leviticus and Exodus, and we want to look forward because they're pointing us. These truths about proper worship are pointing us to something, to someone. See, Ezra and all the Old Testament, it's pointing us to the priest who made a sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, so we could rightly worship God and point the nations to him. That's what Ezra's pointing us to. Elizabeth Elliot described this story we're in and this journey we're on, and what she says to me is just fascinating. He's leading us to the promised land, to new Jerusalem, right? There will be fullness of joy there and there is plenty of joy in route. Believe me. Now that's a great statement and it's a beautiful statement, but if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, you know how all the more beautiful it is. Elizabeth Elliot, her husband and four other men were murdered by the tribe they went to share the gospel with. And Elizabeth Elliot and those other widows and their children went back to that tribe and shared the gospel again and they believed. And now the church exists and is growing among them. And Elizabeth Elliot says on this journey, he's leading us to the promised land. There will be fullness of joy there and there's plenty of joy and route. What story are you going to be part of? You might have to cut off something. You might have to fast from something. You decide to be part of this story God is writing right now in Central Texas. What story are you going to be part of? See, we gladly surrender to Jesus as his people, his temple. Mark's about to sing a song, and I, I want you to listen as he just sings over you. If you know the song, you're free to sing along, but hear truth about God, this God who is transforming us into the people he's calling us to be. God, would you help us? Would you help us to live a beautiful story that is about your glory in Central Texas and all the earth? In Jesus' name, amen.